I invite you to open your Bibles right away this morning. This will not be the text from which I will be preaching, but I believe it serves as a suitable, illustrative introduction to our study this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And on that day, verse 35, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the name of him who hushed the wind and stilled the sea, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of heaven and earth, of the sea and the dry land. And we would plead that he would visit us this morning. He that hushed the storm, we pray, would come amongst us. He would hush our doubts and our fears. Indeed, he would present himself powerful in our midst, that we would come to know him, this one who astounded the disciples, the one whom they came to know as the Lord and the Savior of mankind. We pray that he would have his gracious way with each one of us in this hour. We would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Our hearts would bow before him, And he would do his perfect will amongst us, being gracious to all who come in his presence. We pray, do good, we pray to saint and sinner alike. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now I invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. A few weeks ago we started a study of this precious and powerful little book. <clears throat> it has much to say to each one of us. <clears throat> Jonah is an interesting book because it's not a, a book filled with prophecies like Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah. No, this is essentially a narrative of the experience of a prophet named Jonah the son of Amittai. 
It's a very engaging story, as we've seen so far. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, (coughs) go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the fold of the ship, laying down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased." So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And that's where we'll stop this morning. Well, I suggest to you that one reason why we find the book of Jonah so fascinating is that its story is not just amazing in itself, but this amazing story is a true story. It records actual historical events that really happened. And another reason that Jonah engages us is because we unconsciously place ourselves 
in this story. We are actors with those that are in the story. And we go with the prophet and we go into the storm and we see what happens all around us. And we become, as it were, actors in the story. But there is one who wrote this story. Well, yes, Jonah's pen is the one that penned it. But the great author of this story is God himself. He's the producer. He's the director. He has placed these cast of characters here in this true story. And we've been looking at the effects of the author, great author of this story, God, in calling Jonah, sending him to go down or to go over to Nineveh, but he goes the other direction. Jonah thinks he can get away from God, but God is hot on his tail. Indeed, he meets Jonah down there in Joppa. He gets into, as it were, the ship with Jonah. He's the one that hurls the storm down upon the sea. He's fully in charge of everything that happens here. And so we see the the the, the the captain, he's exceedingly anxious about his ship. He goes down into the hold and he finds Jonah fast asleep, probably in some corner. And he anxiously wakes him up and he, he poses questions to him and he accuses him. In fact, he even says, we have sought our gods. They have not helped us. Would you not seek your God? Maybe your God will have compassion upon us. Meanwhile, they come up out of the hold and the sailors are wondering who is responsible for this storm. And so they cast lots and the lot falls upon Jonah. And then they, they barrage him with all kinds of questions to find out who he is. In finding out who he is, they find out that he's running from God. And God has a righteous controversy with his prodigal prophet. He's AWOL. He's supposed to be going to Nineveh. He's gone on a ship. He wants to go in exactly the opposite direction, as far as he can go, clear out to Tarshish in Spain. Well, God is not going to let his servant go. But he tells Jonah says to the, the, the sailors, if you're going to survive this storm, which is getting much fiercer, and the tempest is great, you're going to have to pick me up, and you're going to have to throw me into the sea, and when you do that, the sea will become calm, and you'll be safe. And so they do that. They picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and it may be just as soon as he hit the water and the ripples went away from his body, the sea became perfectly calm and the sea was flat and the winds were calm. In verse 16, that's what we're going to be considering this morning. Jonah's being returned to his commission here in verses 4 through 17. We saw last time God's powerful Intrusion and the sailors' valiant intervention. We saw Jonah's partial confession, his dreadful instruction. We see the sailors' futile attempt at Jonah's salvation. And that brings us to verse 16 this morning. I just wanted to camp out, park here for just a little bit, because I find this statement in Jonah very intriguing. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. Now this morning I want to examine the sailors' response to this astounding and these unsettling events over the previous hours. And what conclusions, if any, may we draw about the worship of these sailors and more importantly, their spiritual condition. They just witnessed the stilling of the storm. They had just sacrificed God's prophet to the waves. And now they're engaged in worship. And most importantly, what practical lessons may we learn for ourselves from these sailors and their worship? Well, first of all, we, what may we reasonably conclude about these sailors themselves? Now, it's certain that these sailors, first of all, were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They were heathens. They were not numbered among God's covenant people. As Paul would say in Ephesians, they were without hope and they were without God in this world. That they didn't have the covenant promises belonging to them. They were probably Phoenicians. Phoenician mariners, especially from Tyre and Sidon on the coast, were at the top of the world's supply chain in Jonah's day. They were the marketers of the world. They went from place to place, buying and coming back and selling at a profit and doing good business. Second, these Phoenicians worshipped a pantheon of false gods. They didn't worship Jehovah. They worshipped the gods of men's imaginations. And among them were three in particular. Yam. Yam was regarded as the god of the seas and the rivers. Maybe they cried out to Yam, Still the storm, cause, cause the sea to become calm. Now, Yom was the son of Baal, the supreme god of the Canaanites and the, and the Phoenicians. And as god of the sea and the rivers, Yom symbolized the violent and uncompromising events of the natural world. He was in charge of the storms. And then there was many Many was the god of all luck, whether good luck or bad luck. And no doubt these sailors felt that they had fallen into some very bad luck. And maybe they cried out to many as well. And Baal, Baal was the Phoenician's chief god. You probably recognize his name. During his history, Israel fell at times into Baal worship. Baal was the son of Dagon. You might remember him. Dagon. He was the chief god of the Philistines. He was the father of Yom. Baal was worshipped as the ruler of the universe. He was the rider upon the clouds. He was regarded as the Almighty, indeed the Lord of the earth. Baal was a god of war. He was a god of thunderstorms. And the harvest. And like Zeus, he carried a thunderbolt in his hand. In our New Testament, we learn that in Jesus' day, Baal was often referred to as Baal Zebub or Baal Zebul, Lord of the Flies. Baal was regarded as the personification of evil. These were the gods of these Phoenician mariners. And it is quite possible 
that these sailors called upon one after another of these gods or whichever one was their god, pleaded with those gods to save them from the storm as it was gaining fury, as we see in verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid and each man cried to his god. And they ended up jettisoning all of the cargo. They did everything they could to save their lives. And they pleaded with their gods, and their gods came not to their aid. Jonah's confession, notice, of Jehovah as the God of heaven, as the maker of the sea and the dry land. This is, I believe, very purposeful confession on Jonah's part. He's the God who sent the storm. He's the only God who could still the storm. And as that God, he exposed these Phoenician gods, not only as impotent, but as false. They had no existence except in the imaginations of these sailors. And I would suggest further that by his confession of Jehovah, Jonah implied that his God, his God was executing judgment upon the gods of these Phoenicians. Their gods were impotent and powerless. But Jehovah was all-powerful. Indeed, he was, he was judging, executing judgment upon these Phoenician gods, even as he had earlier done upon the Egyptian gods. Exodus 12 and verse 12. Against all the gods of Egypt, Jehovah says, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You see, God's powerful intrusion, both in the storm and in the calm, taught these mariners that, Jeho that Jonah's God is God alone. And like Elijah on Mount Carmel, Jonah exposed the folly of these, of these false gods and the impotence of them. They may have carried likenesses of them. They may have had some kind of human figure, but they had no power. They had form, but they had no function. Second, we must ask, what was the spiritual impact of this revelation of Jehovah being the only God upon these men? Well, we see their worship in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, that is, to Jonah's God, and made vows, made vows to him. What was the practical impact of this confession? Did they, as it were, throw their gods overboard into the sea with Jonah and embrace Jonah's God as God alone? Solomon teaches us that there's nothing new under the sun. And it is helpful to understand that the religion of these ancient pagans was not really unlike the religion of many modern professing Christians. Well, he's Pastor Steve, what, what do you mean by that? Well, some heathens were very serious devotees of their gods. They would probably be in the minority in their day. Most most. Pagans were formalists at best. 
Their religion exerted no practical influence upon their day-to-day lives. And in the same way today, many professing Christians, for them the Word of God exerts little to no practical influence over their lives. Notice further that these men were sailors. I know we have a sailor in our room today. I want to be very careful about what I say Sailors are usually world travelers. They get about from port to port all over the globe. Temptations to sin abound everywhere, on board ship and in every port of call. Pagan religion exerted no moral influence upon heathens. They didn't seek to be holy as their God is holy because their gods were unholy. They were capricious. They were wicked. Read the stories of the Greek and Roman gods. They make you blush. And to be godly, in that sense, would have meant to be extremely wicked. Phoenician sailors were polytheists. And as polytheists, they would have been acquainted with all of the gods in the ports that they put in at. And if only for goods business sake, these men may have professed respect to the chief gods, wherever they would put in port. They would tip their hat toward them. They had no real devotion to their own gods because they had no being. We might say that these pagan sailors, if I can use this term for them back then, they would have been pagan ecumenists. They would have held all gods in esteem. Now let us take what we've just considered here back to our initial question. Did the traumatic experience of these heathen sailors in battling the storm and then learning the tempest was sent by Jehovah's God to chasten his prodigal prophet, then concluding that it was at Jehovah's command that Jonah had them throw him overboard and finally God instantly calming the sea the moment it it swallowed Jonah? Did these startling events cause these pagan sailors to abandon their false gods, repent of their sin, and become true worshipers of the Lord? Well, maybe. I would say hopefully. And maybe not. We know this, we know we can say maybe not. Because no religious experience, no matter how powerful emotionally or profound circumstantially, is able to lead a person to faith in the living God. If that was the case, people that underwent powerful emotional, profound circumstantial experiences, they would be converted. Now oftentimes, they just become harder in their sin. Because it didn't impact them. God sent the storm and they didn't run to Him pleading His mercy. Rather, they just knuckled under. And they said, I can make it by my own grit and determination. In response to their traumatic experience with Jehovah's God, we read 
that these sailors, notice, they feared him greatly, and that they offered him sacrifices and made vows to him. Now, how are we to understand this? And notice, this came after they pleaded with God not to charge them with murdering Jonah, acknowledging acknowledging that in the storm and by their action that Jehovah had done exactly as he pleased. That he is a sovereign God. That the storm wasn't by accident. Their gods hadn't caused it. Their gods hadn't halted it. It was God that sent it. It was God that stopped it. And they offer sacrifices. And they make vows. Now there's we have all kinds of questions here. How could they make sacrifices while they're on the ship? They threw everything overboard earlier. Unless they kept some of the animals, perhaps if they had animals on board, to kill and to eat for food. We don't know. Some commentators say, well, uh, they, they just promised God that they would sacrifice when they got into port. And the vows particularly, that they vowed that they would follow Jehovah from then on. Last week, in closing, I posed the question whether we should regard the response, that we should regard the response of these shaken mariners as simply what is commonly called a foxhole conversion. Soldiers are in a foxhole. Bombs are landing all around them. They say, God, if you get me out of here alive, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And some people still do that. They don't have to be in literal foxholes and war-torn areas. They may get themselves into some kind of jam. And they can't think of any way to get out of it. Oh, God, if you would just help me... In this situation, I will be a follower of Jesus. Well, what often happens is that this person who turns to God in a moment of crisis almost as quickly turns away from Him when the troubles pass. I suggest a couple of reasons why the religious response of these men wasn't a foxhole conversion. First of all, their greatest fear of God came after they were delivered. Before their fear led them to cry out to their gods who were impotent to offer them aid. They exhibited their greatest fear when they witnessed God do what their gods couldn't do. They offered worship to Him who not only brought the storm but stilled the storm. Second, their sacrifices and vows likewise came not before, but after their deliverance from the storm. You see, they had no reason to offer foxhole sacrifices and vows. Now the sea was calm. The wind had died down. Couldn't they just get on business as usual? So the storm is over, but they wanted to worship And God with sacrifices and vows, the same God that had calmed the sea and stilled the winds. 
So the question naturally arises at this point in Jonah, what happened to these sailors after this event? Now, plainly, the Bible doesn't tell us. And we get ourselves in trouble when we try to exegete the spaces between the words. There's a couple of likely scenarios here, obviously. Did they abandon their heathen gods and become worshipers of Jehovah? Well, obviously we're left with two endings. Yes, they did, or, or no, they didn't. Well, let us survey these possible conclusions. And then we will conclude our study by considering the practical relevance of this question to each one of us and how we should view the religious experiences of others. Now, most commentators and expositors I consulted who addressed this question, and most do, they conclude that these sailors turned from their paganism to embrace the Lord as their God. And typical of those comments would be this of Mr. Clark. He states, Witnessing what was done, the sailors became sincere converts to the true God. And Mr. Trapp offers a more tentative but essentially positive answer to this question. He says, They feared before, verse 10, with a natural fear, but now they feared Jehovah. They began to bear all awful respect to the divine majesty of whose power and goodness they were by this miracle clearly convinced, and as it may seem, to the true faith effectually converted. John Knox questions the depth and lasting impact of the religious impressions upon these sailors. He writes, They were touched with a certain repentance of their past life and began to worship the true God by whom they saw themselves as wonderfully delivered. But this was done for fear and not from a pure heart and affection, neither according to God's word. Calvin and those who follow him state almost dogmatically with certainty that these pagan sailors remained unconverted and suggest that they simply augmented their gods by adding Jehovah to their number. B.H. Carroll is of this mind. He writes, As to the nature of their fear, sacrifice, and vows, we are not told, but we are not to suppose that it was the reverential fear that brings salvation. It is probable that they acknowledge Jehovah as one of their gods after this event, but there is nothing here to show that they accepted Jehovah as the only God to the exclusion of their own gods. <clears throat> well, I don't ordinarily read a lot of commentators, but I did just show that there, there's, a, there's a vast array of various opinions as to what happened here. Well, let me ask, is there any reasonable, is it reasonable to draw any firm conclusions about these men's spiritual condition at this time from what we read in verse 16? Did their sacrificing and vowing indicate that they had embraced Jehovah as their God, forsaking all other gods and clinging only to Him? 
Now, we might want the answer to this question, but it's raised, did God accept their sacrifices? Did he accept their vows? Well, Knox and Calvin contend that God would not have accepted them because they were not offered in the manner appointed in his word. It was an issue of the details of worship, you see. <clears throat> but let me ask this question. Because I think it can take us in the direction, maybe of a positive answer. Might God have accepted the sailors' unauthorized sacrifices if they offered them in faith? Is there any biblical warrant to suggest that this is even possible? Well, I think that there is. First, we have the statement in Hebrews that without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Did these men's sacrifices and vows indicate that they were seeking Jehovah and his reward? These sailors may well have had some rudimentary, rudimentary understanding of this principle. Second, you may remember the occasion of the Passover celebrated in Hezekiah's time by ceremonially, ceremonially impure people and even priests. Second Chronicles 30, verses 18 through 20. For many, many years, Israel had not celebrated the Passover. Hezekiah, the great reformer, is seated on the throne. And what does he do? He seeks to gather all of Judah, the southern tribe, and Benjamin, and all the northern tribes to come down across the border and to have a united celebration of the Passover. Lay aside your differences. You come. We'll worship. We read in Second Chronicles 30, beginning in verse 18, For a multitude of people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, that's up north, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. Now, how could they do that? For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. Well, was he on a fool's errand praying this way? No. Verse 20. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. God accepted the imperfect worship of the ceremonially impure priests and people because they had come before God with prepared hearts. That is, they came before Him by faith. 
You see, here's a case where the Lord set aside the letter of the law, ceremonial purification, because the priests and the people demonstrated the spirit of the law, that is, heart preparation to come before God. We may wonder, might God have accepted the sacrifices of these Phoenician sailors on that principle, even though they weren't his covenant people? Now, brethren, surely sincerity is not the sole criterion for acceptable worship. We know that. We are to worship the Father in spirit and truth. But if these sailors were worshiping in spirit, offering their sacrifice by faith in Jehovah, looking to Him as their Redeemer and Rescuer and Savior, might He not have accepted their offerings through Jesus as He did all the sacrifices offered by sincere worshipers under the Old Covenant? I think this is possible. We may apply the same principle to their vows. If their vows were genuine, if they were vowing to worship the living God and Him and Him alone, if they were offered by faith in the Lord to follow Him only, would they not on the same principle be accepted by God? Now that's the hopeful scenario, as I see it. But we may read a different ending to the sailor's story. What if they offered their sacrifices to God while still clinging to their pagan gods? What if they simply added Jonah's God to the Phoenician gods of Baal, Many, and Yom? Jonah preached exclusive attachment to Jehovah as the only God. He is the God of heaven. He is the God of the sea and the dry land. He's the God of your hope if you put your trust in Him. But Jonah's God allows devotion to be given to no other deities. It's not Jesus plus Buddha or Jesus plus Muhammad. It wasn't Jehovah plus Baal and these other gods. Exodus 20 and verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. And this applies to anyone in the covenant community or outside of the covenant community. You shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 45 and verse 21, Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. That seems pretty plain, doesn't it? Acceptable worship is offered to Jehovah alone because He only is God. He will not share His glory with another. Joshua believed this. He knew that Israel would later join other gods to the worship of Jehovah. Now how did he state his unwavering, undivided commitment to fellow Jews whom he know, who knew would later defect to other gods? What did he say? 
Joshua 24 and verse 15. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord exclusively. That's the implication here. Let me ask you this. Don't you think God has a right to be worshipped and served exclusively? You know, it's interesting when the town we lived in, the northern peninsula, upper peninsula of Michigan, there was uh, an, uh, an author, really a reporter, in the local newspaper did a series of articles on the religion in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. The area was first settled by fur trappers. In fact, they might have followed the Jesuits in. They might have come in initially. And then after them came the Methodist, circuit-riding preachers, seeking to establish Protestant churches in the same area. And she remarks that the Roman churches grew leaps and bounds while the Methodist churches languished. Were they both uh, vigorous in their, their outreach? Yes, they both were. But what was it that made the difference? Why were the Roman Catholic churches filled and the Methodist churches just struggled to get by? It's because the Roman Catholic priests allowed the Indians to come in and take their pantheon of gods and worship practices into the church with Jesus. The Methodists, no way. Brothers and sisters, I trust if we were living in that day, we'd be Methodists and not Catholics. God's wrath burned against His covenant people because they intruded other gods into His sanctuary, polluting His pure worship. In poetic justice, God later employed pagan Assyria and Babylon to desert or to deport and resettle His people into heathen nations that worship those gods. Assyria then resettled conquered pagans in Israel. And these displaced pagans that came from other countries, they brought their gods into Israel and added Jehovah to the gods that they worshipped. Oh, he's the God of the land. Well, we'll worship him with these other gods. Second Kings 17, verse 41. So while these nations feared the Lord, you see, they had an outward worship of Jehovah. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. Their children likewise and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. And the legacy of allowing them into the land produced the Samaritans of later generations. So returning to the question raised by the worshiping sailors, what may we conclude about the spiritual impact of God's powerful intrusion into their lives. Were they converted from paganism to worship God alone? Or did they remain committed pagans after offering God their sacrifices and vows? Or did they just add the Lord 
to their pantheon as just one more God. Well, as I preach, I always want to come down with both feet on a subject. And I don't want to be dogmatic where I don't think the Bible is dogmatic. But brethren, what is important is whether Jonah's God is our God. And our God alone. So what does it say to us by way of an abiding message? First of all, bring a lesson from the worship of the sailors. Let us be charitable as well as discerning in our evaluation of another person's professed faith in the Lord. We don't have all the answers. We might wish we did. Someone professes faith in Jesus Christ. We might have questions. Even as we have questions about these sailors. Brethren, let us be discerning without being judgmental. Charitable and hopeful without being needlessly naive. It's kind of hard to find that balance at times. And especially with a recent convert, let us be especially gracious. Let us not expect from them by way of knowledge and Christian experience what we may reasonably expect from older saints. They're babes. They just know a few syllables of the Christian life, so to speak. But if they're lisping the fame of Jesus, they're true Christians. And even from mature professing Christians, let us not expect from all deep Bible knowledge, watertight theology, and sinless perfection. Let me, let me ask you, let me ask myself, is that how we want to be evaluated? You want people plucking at our fruit all the time to hold it up to light and see if it's genuine? Evaluate the profession of others even as you would have them evaluate yours with judgment and charity. Judge with righteous judgment. Don't draw big conclusions after, after, with little evidence. Let me ask you, do you want others to conclude from your own defects and deficiencies that you're graceless? Do they have a heart after God? Do they have a desire to serve Him? Do they hate and mortify their sin and strive to be holy? That's the work of grace in a person's heart. He's not looking for excuses to sin. He's not trying to get as close to the edge as he can and step over when nobody's looking. I have serious questions about that person. Do they show that they love Christ by striving to keep His commandments and repenting when they fail? What does Paul say? Love believes all things. Further, we should take into account their church background. Are they committed to a local church? Do they love God's people? Do they serve in a body of Christians? Christians. 
Have they been well taught? Do they know their Bibles very well? Both from the pulpit or Sunday school lecture and reading at home? Other avenues of being instructed? You see, many godly Christians are stunted because of shallow or defective teaching. Yet it is clear from their lives, if we have eyes to see, that they're living up to the light that they have. See, all Christians are at various stages in their understanding and practice of the truth. Your life and my life. We fit right in there, don't we? Now, we don't want to be content where we are. We want to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. Keep in mind that it could be that you and I are not walking as closely to the Lord. There's a gap between what we know and how we live. Keep in mind that you know more now than when you were first converted. Remember where they might be, right? Now, I am a Reformed Baptist right down to my socks, and if I wasn't, I shouldn't be here, right? I shouldn't be a pastor of this church. And more to the point, as a confessional Reformed Baptist, keep in mind that commitment to Sabbatarianism and the regulative principle does not in itself make a Christian. Did you hold those doctrines when you were first saved? Probably not. But you've come to embrace them as God has given you light and you've understood His Scriptures. But just because others don't hold those things doesn't mean that they're not Christians. Something I have to teach myself. This has been a a message to my own heart. The question is, are we living up to the light that we have? Are we following hard after God? Second, second, a lesson from the sailors for those who profess faith in Christ. Does your life and worship show that you fear the Lord? It used to be that Christians were referred to as those who feared God. But this term has become misunderstood and maligned in our day of easy and casual Christianity. The Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is it's the heartbeat. It's the heartbeat of Christian holiness. It's the springboard of Christian service that is essential to acceptable Christian worship. These sailors feared the Lord greatly. So let me ask you as I ask myself. Do you fear the Lord greatly? Then you will worship Him and Him alone. You see, of course, we don't, I don't worship any other gods. Uh, what does the Apostle Paul do with the Tenth Commandment? He brings it right back to the First Commandment. If we're coveting, we've broken the First Commandment. We have other gods. What do you have to have that you think you need to have to make you happy, your life fulfilling and worth living. 
can you say, Lord, though you take away everything from me, if I have only you, I have everything that I need. And ultimately, can we say, I have in you everything that I want? I don't need to gain the whole world and lose my soul. I want you if I have nothing. Think about our brethren in, in Afghanistan and in other places where they're being stripped down to the bare essentials. And some of them have only the clothes on their back. And many of them, they say 50% of the Afghans are in danger of starvation. And some of them are actually selling their kids in order to bring food into the house. You know, it's easy to, to talk big here. It's, when your life is on the line, you're going to find out how precious faith is. Our brothers and sisters in in the Ukraine that may be running for their lives, leaving all, maybe all they have is the shirt on their back and, and maybe a warm coat that they took off somebody led, laying dead in the street. We have gods, don't we? They're not physical. You, you don't touch them with your hands. Well, maybe you do. Maybe it's it's a car or a house or, or even another person. If you fear the Lord greatly, then you'll strive to live a morally pure life. Second Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Those who fear God, they strive to live holy lives. Do you fear the Lord greatly? Then you'll be careful to come before Him with the only sacrifice He has appointed. We heard about that from the ninth of Hebrews this morning. Jesus Christ and Him alone. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. Offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you fear the Lord greatly? Then you will strive by God's help to keep your vows before God. You will not vow or promise to God what you're careless to perform. Solomon says it's better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. God takes our promises very seriously because he takes his promises to us very seriously. Finally, thirdly, a lesson from the sailor's worship, and that is let all sinners seek salvation from the Lord. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of pagan Americans, even as he was of, of heathen Phoenicians. Don't buy the lie that all religions are essentially the same before God and that all roads lead to heaven. You just might get there faster on the Christian road. There's only one road. Jesus called it a narrow road. And it alone leads to life. But the broad road, there are many that walk on that. Few on the narrow road. Are you on the narrow road? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Is He your perfect sacrifice? Are you accepted in the Beloved? 
Peter preached that. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He's just remembering what Jesus said in the upper room. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Therefore, take heed where you are spiritually. Can you say, if I was to close my eyes this day, I would be ushered into the presence of God? Well, you shouldn't close your eyes until you say, yes, in Jesus Christ, through His grace, I know that I'll enter the presence of God. And for me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? If you can't say that, God has a righteous controversy with you. And He settled it in the person of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And He offers you freely salvation through faith in Him. And and the faith, you don't have to work up yourself. Cry out to God, give me faith to lay hold of Christ and I'll be fully satisfied. You, you pray that way. You mean business, and God will hear you, and He will save you. Let's pray. Lord, Father, whatever questions that we might have regarding these sailors and their spiritual condition and their eternal destiny... Lord, let us settle in our hearts at this very hour, in this moment, that we are trusting in Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. That we're not trusting in the labors of our hands. We're not trusting in anything that we can do. Our trust is completely in Jesus Christ for our acceptance with you. If there are any here that can't say that, work grace in their heart so that before they leave this place, they can say, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to guard that which I have entrusted to Him until that day. O Lord, hear us as we pray these things. Take Your Word and powerfully apply it to each one of our hearts. O demonstrate Your grace and mercy to each one of us, entirely undeserved, but powerfully, abundantly given in Jesus. For we pray these things in His name. Amen.